Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AFFI podcast uh, with your two amazing hosts, me, Jerry Marzullo, and also Luke slash Timothy Howison. He's amazing. And this is episode, we've been told that we have to lock it up and actually figure out our episode numbers now. This is episode six. It's amazing. And by the way, we also have, I was going to introduce him later, but he's just so amazing. We have Chuck Sullivan here, who is drinking Sprite like it's going out of out of style. So there you go. And we are here to talk to you about the wonderful world of pensions from Fire and Iron Media uh, Studios, home of Chicago's bravest podcast. And you should catch their podcast wherever you find your podcast. After, of course, you listen to ours, roll right into theirs and then go from there. Uh, but thank you, as always, to them for allowing us to use the studio and record this. And I'll get into it in a minute, but we have a super special guest uh, that we want to talk pensions about who is one of the most knowledgeable people regarding pensions you'll ever come across. And But before we get into that, uh, again, any different ideas for podcasts that you may have, please email us and contact us. People have... Uh, come to us with some really great ideas that we're going to be incorporating as season one of the AFFI <laughs> I laugh every time. Season one of the AFFI podcast uh, uh, moves along and continues, and the response has been fantastic. And as long as people keep listening and sharing it, which seems to be happening, um, we'll keep recording them and doing them. So, Luke, what am I missing? Yeah, in fact, this episode on pensions is something that's been widely requested from members, say, because yeah. a lot of people just don't understand, and you kind of mentioned it, there's tier one, there's tier two, there's different benefit levels and different things you can do with your pension, uh, you know, you know, reciprocity, different like things like that. So it's it's definitely a needed topic, and uh, I think it will benefit our members to listen to. Yeah, and because, we, you know, you have a lot of people, what I found is, and I guess we found from the feedback, is a lot of people, you know, people on the pension boards, of course, are, are coming to the trainings and the seminars and the conferences and and, and understand that, but you know, there's a lot of guys at some of the out, you know, the outer houses, or uh, you know, on, on the backstep, or a lieutenant engineer somewhere that that kind of have an idea, but then have a lot of questions. So, to that end, again, we have the living legend that is Chuck Sullivan, who's going to be joining us talking about this, and I'm super happy to introduce uh, just a wealth, a fountain of pension knowledge. If this person went to law school, would immediately be the best pension attorney in the state of Illinois. But Allison Barrett from Lauterbach and Amas is joining us. Allison, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Thank you. No pressure on that introduction. Thank no, you. <laughs> one Sox fan to another. We just had a podcast with a Detroit Tigers fan. It was a disaster. So Ugh. I'm very glad. I know, right? Ugh. So I'm very glad that you're here with us today. But before we get into that, and Alice, I wanted to introduce you so that everybody um, uh, knew that you were going to be on uh, to talk about the wonderful world of pensions. But Luke has some pretty awesome history for those of you 
uh, in Illinois to understand how this evolved. So I'm going to turn over to Luke for a second, and then, Allison, we are going to ask you anything and everything about pensions, and we'll just kind of struggle through it. So, Luke, what do you got for us? So we kind of were talking about, like, nerds in the last podcast and stuff. That's correct. I'm a history nerd. Guilty as charged. And I think it's important as firefighters. Uh, we had a lot of history, uh, sorry, history and tradition in our in our job and such. And actually this past week we were down at the FFI office going through a lot of historical documents and kind of thumbing through them, found a lot of interesting stuff about our pensions. And I thought it would be important just to start this podcast with that and kind of hit on a couple major points about firefighter pensions in the state of Illinois. So originally Chicago became a professional department in 1858. And before they were union and even set up a pension fund, their original intention on what became pension funds was in 1876 when they formed the Mutual Aid Society of the Paid Department of the City of Chicago. And what that was there for was to provide benefits to widows and children of fallen firefighters. Correct. Correct. So that was kind of your start into like a, a pension fund. And then shortly after that, in 1877, the state of Illinois actually passed the first statewide firefighter pension law. And then in 1887, on the statewide basis, they expanded to include widows and minor children in cities over 50,000. And obviously over time, we kind of talk about our pensions. We improve them. Benefits change over time. And how they're funded has changed over time. So in 1919, which really started what are modern-day Article Four and Article Six funds are. It was are. effective 1919. Yes, right? in yes. 1919, they established a fireman's pension fund in cities over 5,000 population. That law passed in the state of Illinois. And then in 1931, they established a firefighter's benefit annuity fund in Chicago. Chicago did have a pension fund, but it became set in law. What we know of it as today in 1931. Correct, correct. correct. So... One of the things I found interesting, because I actually called Chuck the other day when I started looking at this well, stuff. Well, because he's so old. Chuck's so old, he remembers 1931 when that happened. He was aware. He was bootlegging at the time, but he was crusty. there. That's crusty. <laughs> or salty. Yeah. I don't know what the right term there yeah. is. He but was out with flappers, and he was doing the jazz hands, and he was starting pension funds. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> so what I found interesting, I'm, I'm pouring through these old documents, and I called him, and I'm like, well, it looks like what they they wanted to create the pension fund in 1941. He goes, well, I remember 1919, and obviously he's involved with the passing of the laws in the legislature and down in Springfield. So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll have to look at this a little more. So what I actually found is, so Chicago's fund, actually that was passed in 31, became a research project, and our delegates at convention in 1940 passed a resolution to set up a more established fund and benefit levels and kind of mirror what Chicago had. For so for downstate or what correct. we now know is downstate. Correct. Yes. So we even had more of a setup on what our funds look like today in 1941 that was passed in the state legislature. So there was some research done and what they did is they actually, what we have down in the office is kind of cool. They did these surveys to all the locals. Oh, cool. And it kind of went over like, hey, how many members do you have in the department? They put their names down. What are your funding levels in your cities and, and such like that of your funds? And their Which, by the way, is when everybody was doing 24 on and 24 off shifts. Yes, yeah. yes. So there wasn't as many guys. So another interesting piece they had, so in 1940, they had the actual fireman's pension list of men, a 
of firemen. And at that time, there was 85 statewide in the downstate fund. So actually receiving a pension. 85 humans Just 85 in the entire downstate. That were actually drawing a pension at that time. So that, I thought that was kind of cool. And then one of the other things is just when you, when you go through the old convention minutes and resolutions and such, a lot of the same issues with the pension funds today are, they were talking about them back then. Um, obviously the employers try to make changes and diminish the benefits, you know, and we work to, to kind of make them better. But our original convention that established the AFI in 1935, it was in Springfield, is one of the representatives from Local 2 from Chicago, uh, Mr. Kelly. He informed every local... How, how did you just know that the representative was going to last name Kelly? Like, well, it's... Come on, right? It's Irish. Yeah. It's kind of like Marzullo from yeah, Berwyn. Yeah. Um, but he... Sullivan. Yes. So he uh, informed every local to watch their pension fund, check the collections and investments, as well as the investors, and try to make the fund solvent. So even, you know, when these were established in 1919, when you're in 1935, they're trying to make it, sure, you know, address these issues, you know, that far back. So shortly after the AFI was established, like I said, you get to 1940, 1941, and they're trying to make it more established, put more... Um, containments in to control the costs, improve the funding of the system. And what I found was interesting too, they kind of said, hey, we do have one of the best benefit levels in the state. And uh, I was gonna try to find that sheet. So these fine gentlemen back then, you know, they kind of laid out that pensions are the most essential thing in connection with our work. So this is from the 1940 kind of resolution. Yeah, this is from 1940. And uh, this was actually Redmond who was an IFF, yes, John Redman, who was an IFF vice president. He came from Local 2, eventually became president of the IFF. The Redman Symposium. The Redman Symposium. Yep. And he basically said, pensions are the most essential thing in connection with our work. And I, and I believe all firefighters, all our members believe that. That's, that's one of the biggest things of our jobs. We know we're going to be protected in the, in the line of work. And basically, he goes on to say, it makes us know that we're going to be taken care of. Placing pensions on a safe and sound basis should be the principal subject of any convention of this kind. Some thought should be given to provide for a reserve in our pension funds, and Illinois is, in, is fortunate in having good pension laws. Some states are not so fortunate. So you know, <laughs> it's kind of a little different today what you hear out there um, about our state funds. But I, I think our Article Four funds are in, in pretty good shape for the most part. Yeah, and, I would say that they are, and they're pretty sound. So, but you know, I think it's interesting to kind of look at this stuff, and you know, hopefully down the road in future podcasts we can dive into more history. But I think it's good to put a little foundation out there for this because you know you were looking at too. I found a you know a pension booklet from East St. Louis's fund in 1964. Yes, and you know it kind of set up what some of the benefits are, and and you know the 50 years of age and 20 years of service that's been pretty standard the whole time. So it's kind of cool to kind of look at the stuff and and see how it evolved from the beginning. Yeah, and and I one of the things that you just said that I want to build on because we do have some, which has been kind of cool. We do have some younger members of the statewide locals who are listening to these podcasts and I've heard from them. I know that you have heard from them. And, you know, when I got on the job, I had just turned 22 
and a pension was the furthest I could care. I was like, wait, you're going to pay me X number of dollars to go party for 48 hours on my off days? Like when I had just turned 22, that I got to tell you was the overriding concern. So, you know, there are four firemen in here uh, in the room, uh, including our amazing sound engineer. And I have to tell you that, you know, now when you look back, when you think of all the calls that you run on and the lack and the just the, no sleep and inside burning buildings and dealing with shootings and accidents and 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 hazardous materials, man, is it nice that this benefit is at the end of the there's the light at the end of the tunnel. And you really, I I, I did not under I was very short sighted and in you know filled with whiskey and old style at the time, but you don't really realize how important that is until you till you it truly comes into play. So if you're going to be on the roof of a burning building cutting a hole, it's nice to know these benefits are there. That, by the way, shameless plug, the Associated Firefighters has done such an incredible job preserving and, and making happen. I, I don't think it's, it's – I don't uh, – forgive me for saying this, but I, these laws don't exist uh, and the benefits don't exist as they do today without AFFI. I mean, it's, it's straight up. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but for everybody out there that's listening, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, what the, the, the benefits that have, to, that have been passed. Um, Chuck, am I missing anything on that before we kind of get no, into that? I, no, I, I would just be you know, re- reiterating what, what you and Luke have both said, but I think it's important for our members to know that um, every pension benefit that you know, has been acquired is through the state legislature. And you know, this isn't the city of Waukegan um, dictating what their firefighters are going to get in retirement. This is all done at the state level. There's 177 legislators uh, that must pass the 59 in the Senate, 118 in the House, and a governor that needs to sign that bill. And um, But that's easy, right? You just walk in and get that passed. <laughs> right, no problem, right? Right, yeah. right, right. It's, um, and, and Luke, and none of the four of us in here you know, signed up, applied for a job that we knew was going to make us millionaires. Um, and like you, when I was 25, 26, when I started and barely knew what a pension was, and we've gotten to the point in society now where there is pension envy. If you're a public employee, um, because quite frankly, I, you know, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but our, our pension is funded in, in three different ways. That's the employee us contribution, which downstate firefighters is 9.45% of every single paycheck. Chicago is nine and an eighth, I believe, Vince. And um, so that, that's one leg. The second leg is the employer contribution. And that you know typically comes from the community that you're residing in, property taxes and, and other Other items. revenue streams. And then thirdly is the investment returns. Um, and as the president of the AFFI, and I'm speaking for the legislative team, we are unapologetic for our pension. That there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, we are deserving of it. The, I don't, Sean is going to kill me because I don't have that number off the top of my head now, but I did last year. I think the average pension for a firefighter in downstate is, I'm going to blow it. Sean's going to be so pissed. But yeah, 50 something. Uh, uh, mid to upper 50s or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Sean's going to text me in about, oh, no, I'm sorry, when, when he, he hears when he this. he hears this. Yeah. Um, and maybe he can... He'll be so steeped in data. Right. It's fine. What I'm, My point is, it's an adequate pension. 
you know, after a long and rewarding career. And, and you mentioned, the, you know, the number of things that, that we face on a daily basis. Uh, so, again, unapologetic for it. Um, and we do our best to ensure that our members are, are you know, protected and that we, we will have a pension uh, when each one of them retire. So we can get into Tier 2 later. So. Well, yeah, and I, I think what we want to do is 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 – Jerry's reading something. Yeah, Luke's shopping for this. No, it's really interesting. Pension laws shorter. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm sorry. Give me a second here because he just handed it. Um, super labor nerd Luke slash Timothy had had sent me something that actually uh, the AFFI had created back in what is this like? Oh, this is like the mid '90s. A chronology of Illinois firefighter history, and there's a great sentence in here. Pension laws, shorter hours, and livable wages were not awarded by generous city councils. Rather, firefighters organized through union solidarity to improve their livelihood and conditions. No truer words were ever spoken. So, uh, yeah, let me – so so I, I just want to build on what Chuck said, and I also want to treat this podcast – um, to those individuals who are not sitting on their pension funds, and I just want to define some things and give a little bit of a history here as to why we have our super special guest on uh, who has patiently but kind of been sitting through our, our, our prologue here. You still there, Allison? Allison, are you there? Did you start drinking Talk yet? to us. Talk to us. No, I didn't start drinking. I actually was looking stuff up while you were talking, and on the DOI webpage, it looks like in 2018, the average current benefit for Article 4 was 58000 ah, Right there, oh, 58000 Who needs Sean Gillis when you have <laughs> Allison Barrett and Google Fingers of Fury? That was amazing. Okay. So 58000 we were right there. A so, very modest number. Very modest right. number. That's correct. Um, especially if you're going to breathe in cancerous materials for 30 years. You're Goddamn right. So uh, let me just kind of define what we're talking about for those individuals who don't sit on their pension funds really quickly. Your pension board, whether you are a fire department municipal or whether or not you are a fire protection district, is made up of five humans, right? I know the guy next to you on the pension board may not seem human, but I think he is. So it is two active members made up of your active department. So from the chief down to the lowest backstep, anybody can run as an active member. Two members who are appointed by the municipality or the fire protection district. So your mayor sits there and says, I want these two on the board, whatever. And or your fire uh, protection district president, what, what have you. And one beneficiary. So one retired member. So five members, two, two, and one. Allison and I, as you guys in the room, were around long enough when it was, you know, nine members back in the day. I think that changed. Allison, what do you think? Was it like 07, 08 or something that changed to five? Is that right? Do you? I believe it was a little earlier. I can check. Yeah, some Google. I know it was before 2008. Yeah, it was before 2008, but it used to be nine individuals. It was a little unwieldy. Anyway, now it's five, the modern fund. And when we were talking about downstate, here's what that means. For our purposes today, there are two pension systems. And our, our friendly cousins in blue, the police, 
uh, mirror it. So there's Chicago Police and Fire, which is Article 5 and Article 6. Chicago being the super special place that it is, has their own system. And then there is downstate police and fire. And downstate doesn't mean south of I-80. Downstate means any other pension fund for police and fire. Again, for our purposes today, we do have some IMRF firefighters and different, you know, whatever. But for our purposes today, uh, that means anybody else who's not city of Chicago. So whether that be Rockford or Cairo, Illinois, you are in what's called the downstate pension system or article four, your brothers and sisters in Chicago, uh, are like our amazing sound engineer is, uh, in article six. Okay. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about downstate pension funds, not geographical location. That's just the way that it is, that it, what it is called. So we and have, there are 296 Downstate Article Four uh, fire pension funds. Two hundred ninety six firefighter pension funds. Correct. Downstate, and then two ninety seven with our brothers and sisters in the city in their own super awesome fund. Okay, I have been practicing long enough in this area to know that it it has really over the last ten to fifteen years gotten more complicated. And laws have been passed and statutes and cases, uh, requirements, reporting requirements, training requirements. For me personally, I kind of remember the Wild West beforehand and then just what it has turned into today into the modern pension system. And certainly the individual that has been fortunate fortunate enough for us that she is volunteering her time to be on this podcast to explain all this, Allison Barrett is not an age but an experience, an old pension warhorse, and she has been around a while uh, um, and has helped a great number of uh, police and fire, well, for our purposes today, firefighter pension funds. So, Allison, just first of all, again, thank you for being here. And just for, for all of those people listening in Radio Land, just give us a little background of you, first of, all, of yourself and also one of my favorite firms that I push all the time. I should get a goddamn referral fee, but I don't. Lauterbach and Amon, uh, get me just your background and the firm's background and why you're here today. Sure. So believe it or not, next year will be 20 years that I've uh, been at Lauterbach and Amon. So again, you started, started when you were 12 out. or 13. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Right out of, uh, right, yeah. Um, started working, just doing some number crunching, paying pensioners. I think at the time we may have had about 65 police and fire pension funds we provided benefit services for. Um, I think I was employee number 12 to be hired, and we're well over 150 now. And um, our pension footprint, I guess I could say, um, expands throughout the state. We're actually out of the state as well um, in different places in the country. Um, and it's expanded from just pension benefits and audits and accounting to administration and actuarial services. I think we're at about um, 220 of the 296 Article 4 funds that we work with in some aspects. So we're big pension nerds. Um, this is kind of all we do. Um, and for me personally, all I do is, is really focus on those, those pension benefits themselves. So whether it's a, a Tier 1 versus Tier 2, um, uh, retirement versus a disability, reciprocity, military purchases, um, all those fun things Springfield creates uh, and lets us get to figure out um, I work with. So, yeah, and I don't think 
But sometimes I don't think the listeners really understand the, the level of intensity that's sometimes with these pensions and what we have to do. You and I are, I would say we are in a fair amount of routine contact over all sorts of pension fun and related issues. And it is amazing, Alice, I don't know if it is to you still, but after all of these years of dealing with this stuff in, in the wonderful world of labor and pensions, um, there's still things we haven't seen before, right? Like I'll get an email from you that says, I got a guy that X, Y, and Z happened and I'm looking at it going, son of a bitch, I have no idea. We've never seen this before <laughs> with hundreds Correct. and hundreds of pension funds. It's, it is amazing. Maybe a testament, Chuck, to the ingenuity of our members and how they look at certain That's things. Right. We, we, actually just, uh, we actually just finished calculating up a firefighter who was doing reciprocity was granted a non-duty disability um, maybe six months ago uh, and is converting it from his non-duty disability into a reciprocity retirement. The first time we've seen one of those. Yeah. So one of the things that's really nice is uh, before we started recording this podcast, uh, Luke, being the kind person he is, gifted to me a bottle of Hibiki Japanese Harmony whiskey. And I'm so excited but I would have to drink a bottle of that to figure out what you just told me. So wait, so, <laughs> so, so it was a reciprocity and a non-duty to a regular retirement conversion all at the same time. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, correct. That's, that's gotta be a fun math problem. Fun, fun math problem for the ages. So, <laughs> um, again, the goal of this podcast is to really discuss again, pensions one-on-one so that everybody just has an, a general understanding of one of the reasons why they are, uh, um, you know, on a roof with a saw at 2.30 in the morning in February. So we talked about Downstate versus City. We talked about the makeup of the board. But I also want to delve into a little bit of a breakdown, if it's okay, on how the fund is funded. And Chuck talked about that preliminarily. Um, well, no, I was pretty comprehensive, but I want to also want to break down the levy amounts, uh, 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 you know, and, and how that is, that is done. So we have employer contribute. So first of all, let me ask you that, Allison, give me the, the general funding concepts of how your typical pension fund is funded to kind of build off of what Chuck said. Sure. So like Chuck said, there are three different sources of, of money coming into the pension fund. You have the employee contribution, currently the 9.455%. The employer kicks in a portion, whether it's through property taxes or other revenue sources, and then those monies are invested. And every year, an actuary, whether it's a private actuary engaged by the pension fund or the employer's actuary or just the Department of Insurance at times, their actuary looks in their crystal ball, does all this crazy math and says, okay, here are all the participants in the fund that are active, how old they are based on statistics and such, how many of them we think will stick around for retirement, how many may get hurt. Um, here are the folks that we are currently paying pension benefits to, the type of benefits they are receiving, how old they are, et cetera. And then the actuary takes all that information and says, here's how much money the pension fund is going to need to pay these benefits. And here's how much money they have on hand. So the difference between what they're going to need and what they have on hand essentially is requested by the employer for the property taxes. Um, and then the tax levy request is approved by the municipal or the district board, and then it shows up as a wonderful line item on your property tax bill every year. I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to I wait until you're no, finished. No, no, that's, 
That's pretty much it. So, so I wanted to key in on a word that you used and break that down for a minute, which is the tax levy request. Because it's a request. And I want everybody out there in Radio Land to understand what that means for the tax levy. So, as Allison said, you've got, you know, you've got employee contributions. And then I'm sorry, the third prong, which we didn't discuss, which is investments. So each pension fund has an investment consultant, investment manager. They, you know, invest in, you know, municipal bonds and in stocks and treasuries and all sorts of stuff. And that they make money off those investments within the meaning of the pension code. And we'll get into the consolidated fund um, a, a little bit later on. But one of the things you talked about, because we do, we have a lot of labor members uh, that are on here that are really, you know, on the labor executive boards, et cetera, so they can understand, is this tax levy request? And I want to get into that. There was a series of cases that we don't, we don't have to get into, but actually, if we wanted to talk about history, this would be a, really an interesting podcast in and of itself. But there are a series of cases that everybody should know in the 80s or 90s. You don't even have to know the names. Uh, um, but that whether the question was... If the levy was in a, a shall enforceable contribution like our IMRF brothers and sisters. So for those individuals who receive a pension through the Illinois Municipal Retirement Fund or Article 7, when Allison was talking about the levy amount, that levy is calculated by an actuary based on those variables. The municipality is given a um, – invoice and they pay it and if they don't pay it it gets taken right out of their account and it is a it is a shell in those series of contribution or cases excuse me back in the 80s and 90s the important takeaway is it the court found that these this was more of a political question the the court found that let me put it to you this way. As long as the levy is based on some sort of actuarial requirement that is okay, the municipality is free to use their own actuarial analysis and that there was there, – there is enforcement provisions, but I can tell you that historically those enforcement provisions severely lag, for instance, what IMRF and their ability to enforce those contributions. So what you have happened – what has happened over the years – um, is that we do have funds that are in good shape. Article 4 funds are in good shape. But, you know, that instead of maybe being 70 or I'm sorry, excuse me, 80, 85 percent funded, they are 70 percent funded, 68 percent funded, 65 percent funded because of that lack of enforceability. And that has been a real problem over the years. Um, Allison, am I missing anything on that or is there something I got wrong? Sounds good. Yeah, that's pretty much the history behind it. Chuck, any thoughts on the enforceable levy issue or should we move on? Are you talking about the enforceable uh, from the comptroller? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the history oh, okay, pre-comptroller. Okay. Right, right. I'm with you. Uh, okay. Because, you know, really what would happen, let me put it, let me give everybody an example. And this is kind of the famous example that I use. So if the higher rate investment rate of return that a levy anticipates from their investment returns is really a lower uh, municipal contribution. So for instance, in 2009, 2010, when Lehman Brothers imploded and the market had gone kaput, 
I had a mayor who I was personally knowledgeable of that wanted to use a 9% rate of return assumed on investments instead of the minus 40% that the market was accurately at. Using a 9% rate of return, you actuarially uh, deflated the number that was the recommended levy amount so that the municipality would have to put in yet less, et cetera, et cetera. So there are bona fide instances of municipalities over the last 20, 30, 40 years truly playing games with those numbers that artificially underfunded the firefighter pension funds throughout the state of Illinois. No doubt. Creating a great deal of unfunded liability. Creating a massive amount of unfunded uh, liability. Now, there are a great many of employers out there who are wonderful, responsible, understand, levy the right dollar amounts, et cetera, that, that absolutely exists. And I think a great majority of the employers out there truly try their very hardest to fund these properly. But there have been definite circumstances of, of this, this type of funding going on. Uh, so I wanted to just break down on those three funding concepts, the levy dollar amounts that everybody should be aware of, because that is, as Allison said, the fund dollar amount that shows up on your property tax bill. So to those three sources of funding, I think we've kind of beaten that dead horse, Allison, or am I missing anything? No, that sounds about right. All right. And with that then, uh, as that is invested over the years by your five members, um, and, and so, Allison, those are all, so for instance, the retired member and the active members are elected. What are the terms right. of the retired and active members on a Article Four pension fund? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot. I want to say there are three, but they might be two. I can check. No, I think- um, And while I'm- no, I think it's, it's, isn't it two? And on the police side is three. Is that correct? Three, yes. Right. Yes. And then they, they should stagger so that you don't have a full or a majority turnover of your, your board trustees at the same time. And one of the saddest things I've ever seen is when you have active members that don't want to run, when you have like an open spot and right. people are like, yeah, too big. I'm like, well, if you're too busy for your retirement, it is what it is. But that's my, my soapbox speech for the, for the moment. Okay. And Allison, real quick. Yeah. If there is not a an annuitant um, willing to run, a, a survivor is still considered an annuitant, correct? A, a survivor could serve on the pension. A surviving spouse. Right. Um, on the police side, yes. On the fire side, no. I don't believe they can. The, yeah, there's been a question over the years of what that statute means, and because it's vague, certain funds – you know, do it a certain way. Right. Uh, but for instance, on the fire side, if there are no retirees, then we'll run an active member in their spot, you know, so we'll go right. ahead and have right. that. So okay. if there are no retirees, absolutely. And it was in 2006 where the uh, trustees dropped from nine to five. Oh, 2006. Thank Remember. you. Mm -hmm. Fingers of fury. I remember that. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the funding concepts of, of, of this, and then I want to move into the benefits. So starting out with the regular retirement pension or what we in the know, the cool peeps in the know called 20 and 50, uh, give me the outline, Allison, of the regular retirement pension benefit for a firefighter. Okay, do you want me to one. clarify first with the tier one? Okay, tier so one. let's, yeah. So for a tier one member, which is 
anyone who is part of an Article 4 fund prior to January 1st, 11. It doesn't matter which fund. It doesn't matter how long you were there. It doesn't matter if you quit and took a refund and came back to a different fund after January of 11. As long as you had one day of service with any Article 4 fund prior to January 11, you're Tier 1. And that 2050 benefit means that once you have completed 20 years of creditable service, you are entitled to a pension benefit equal to 50% of the salary attached to your rank on the last day that you work. Firefighters have another little uh, benefit that for each additional month of service and additional year of service beyond 20, you're going to get a little bit more. So every completed year beyond 20, you get an additional 2.5% of that salary. And for every completed month, that puts you shy of another year, you'll get one twelfth of two and a half percent. Which is a little bit it's different than out our at police... 75%. Right. And that's a little bit different than our police cousins as far as the completed month. Correct. The police don't get the extra the extra benefit for the month. Yes. Thanks, Chuck. Uh so so, so, so it's the 2050. I, I, but I do have a lot of questions. I want to, I want to stop because I do, I get a lot of questions in, I think you explained it the right way, but I just want to, I want to reiterate this and I want to just give kind of like a real world example here. Uh, I was a Cicero firefighter in 2009 for two months. I leave the Cicero fire department. Uh, I, go and I become a teamster. I drive a truck for three or four years. I then get hired by the Berwyn Fire Department. After 1-1 of 2011, I get hired as Berwyn Firefighter in 2013 or something along those lines. Because I was a member of an Article 4 pension fund prior to 1-1 of 2011, like you just said, whether it be for a day, a month, two years, whatever, I am Tier 1 according to the pension code. Correct. Um, Correct. Um, but I've also, well, okay, hold on a second. What, maybe what we'll do is we'll break this down tier one versus tier two. The difference in what we just spoke about between tier one and tier two, let's, let's talk about it. Elson, do you want to give us an overview of, tier, of the tier two difference in benefits be, between, uh, from what you just stated? Sure. So for a tier two firefighter, um, to vest for a retirement pension, and actually we should probably back up for Tier 1 because for Tier 1 firefighters, you have your 2050 benefit. But Tier 1 firefighters actually vest for a retirement benefit after 10 years of service. At age 60. So, correct. And that one kicks in at age 60. And there's a really goofy table in the statutes as to which percent um, you're uh, allocated based on how many years you do complete between 10 and 20 the one thing to keep in mind is if you don't complete 20 full years, you don't get the extra perk by completed month. Right. It's um, by a so whole then, year below 20. Correct. Correct. So then for tier two firefighters, tier two firefighters vest for retirement after only 10 years of service. And the statutes say you can collect at age 55. You're actually eligible as a tier two firefighter to collect at age 50. But if you do start to collect before you are 55, we call it a penalty. The statutes call it a reduction. But your pension benefit is reduced by one half of 1% for every month that you are under the age of 55 when you retire, collect your benefit. 
So let's just stop and break that down for a second. So tier two, I guess what I'm going to say is the minimum, here's how I'm going to put it. The minimum in my weird little pea brain, here's how it works. The, the minimum age to retire is, is 55, I'm going to say. You can retire with no penalty. You can retire at 50. However, there is a mathematical penalty of one half of 1% for every month that you retire prior to age 55, correct? Correct. And we do that on the tail end. So we would calculate the benefit, assuming the member's 55. You know, it spits out a number. The pensioner is going to receive X amount of money. And then we have to apply the reduction. So let's say they are 16 months shy of age 55. Then we take whatever pension benefit the calculation says to pay, and we're going to reduce that by 8%. So one half of the percent for each month for each of those 16 months. And I also want to back up because I, I, I do hear – I still to this day get a, a lot of questions about what it means, and you would use the term vested. And I want to make sure um, uh, that we understand what the term vested is. Vested under Article 4 means different things. I still have – so let me back up for a second. And we're – I don't want to get too complicated here. But and for a f- downstate firefighter, an Article 4 firefighter to qualify for a non-duty disability pension, you have to have seven years on the job. Seven. Correct. A lot yep. of a lot of times, though, guys get very confused and they think that somehow that means that you're somehow vested. What that means is that you're vested and jurisdictionally eligible for a non-duty disability pension. But the absolute minimum, now I always say 20 and 50, but you're right. We do have individuals who leave uh, between 10 and 20 years. So technically speaking, 10 years complete at age 60, you can collect 15% of your salary. There is that weird chart under Article 4 of the fund. But at the end of the day, you have to wait till 60, um, and it has to be completed years. But the non-duty, the seven years that everybody runs around and talks about, that is for a non-duty disability pension. So that is kind of the understanding in investing that I get questions on a lot all the time. So um, you know what? Technically, people right now, Allison, I don't know if you've seen this, but people right now are, are eligible for the tier two minimum 10-year pension. 10 years have passed since 1-1 of 2011. Yes. Have you seen anybody yep. come through? We take- have. What? Yes, we have. Yep, we have. Yep, we do. We have a handful of pensioners that are tier two that have retired um, and are collecting. We actually have seen, I've personally seen more on the police side, um, but they're, they're out there. Wow. Wow. So- yep. Is the oh I, I have a question from the audience. Hold on, I want to ask you this. Is are you talking about Article Six Chicago though? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we have a question about Article Six. I don't know the answer because I don't. I mean, I, I I've helped out certain applicants under Article Six, but I don't know if you know this. Is the language different for paramedics for Tier One and Tier Two under Article Six, Allison? Do you know that? Do you know the answer to that? I'm not putting you on the spot on a weird, quirky little question. I don't know the answer. I do believe there was something somewhat recently that changed under Article 6 that incorporated the paramedics into the same group as the firefighters, and they used to be separate, but that's about the extent of what I I I don't know the definitive answer to that. We can get an answer, and we can get back to you for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I love – we should – 
Can we do one of these in front of a live studio audience one day? Yeah, I think we should. We should. Vince, can we, can we, we can do have that? Take Collins. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do that. Oh my god, that's a great idea. We we go to a we go to a bar outdoor. We just it's like ESPN one thousand, but it's us recording in front of a live studio audience. People are questions. The whole thing. It'll be nuts. It'll be amazing. Done. Jesus. On the ESPN eight the Ocho. All right, Allison. Thanks for putting up college game day. Yeah, we can even dress like the mascots. I'll dress like you. It'll be <laughs> or Margaret Thatcher. One of the one of the two. Okay. Um, so we talked about the minimum. Oh, and I'm sorry. Then the maximum pension conversely is after 30 years, 75%. Correct. Yes. So you can tier keep working. Yep. Yeah. And tier one and tier two, you can keep working. You can put your 40 years in if you want, but the maximum benefit for you is 75%. Then we have the wonderful world of pension increases. Um, yep. so can we go over Allison for us, the tier one, initial increase 55 back down to 50 and you know the the deferred and blah 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 right so for the tier one firefighter on a retirement the first increase comes the later of the month after the member turns 55 so not the month you turn 55 the month after you turn 55 or the month after you've been retired for one year so that's when you receive your first increase the amount of the first increase for a tier one retired firefighter is one twelfth of 3% of the original benefit for every full month that has passed since the benefit began. So a lot of times I'll be out in the field and people say, Hey, how come my first increase wasn't 15%? Well, it actually is rarely 15% anymore. If the member actually retires on their 50th birthday and you do the math, you end up with 60 full months between retirement and the first increase. And if you crunch the numbers, that's where 15% comes from. But most of our firefighters are working beyond the age of 50. And if you're a math freak and you look at the formula, you would see that the longer you work as an ex, the closer you are to age 55 when you retire, the smaller the initial percent increase will be. So while it's maxed at 15%, the minimum is actually 3%, and it can fall somewhere in between those. So back of the envelope math, if I retire at 53, I am deferred for two years. I would not receive any increases until my initial increase at age 55, where I would get 6% for the two years, correct? Um, It depends because it's calculated now by month. Yes. So it might be six and a quarter or something. Like yeah. That. So some back of the envelope, yeah. it's mm-hmm. calculated by month. Okay. Right. So um, now let's go into the difference in where that initial increase is in tier two. So tier one, right. month after age 55 or month after retired for one year. On tier two, as you can see for tier one, tier two is kind of pushed out five years in that same so, vein, right. So yeah. for, right, tier two, your first increase comes the latter of the January after you turn 60. So if your birthday is January 2nd, you've got to wait almost the whole year. So it, for tier two, it's the January after you turn 60 or the January after you've been retired for one year. And the increase is the lesser of 3% of your original benefit or half the CPIU. So the CPIU is a measurement of how our economy has grown. 
And to make sure that all 296 fire pension funds are on the same page, every November 1st, the Department of Insurance, our regulatory agency, releases their newsletter on their webpage called The Siren. And it says, okay, here is the CPIU number for last year. And so half of it is X. And that is the number that we use for our calculations for the upcoming year. So if it is less than 3%, if it's zero, for example, then the increase the member's entitled to will be zero. Um, If the CPIU decreases, the pension benefit will not decrease. Um, But essentially under tier two, you are guaranteed the opportunity for an increase, but not guaranteed the actual increase itself. And then during the the tier two changes that just happened within the last year because of the consolidated, along with the consolidated fund, what changes to that, if any? So the, that kind of affects more the surviving spouse or the survivor benefits for tier two and the calculation of the salary cap. Correct. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I'm sorry. We can get into that. I'm, yes, that's correct. That I want to take this as tier one, tier two. I'm sorry. So yes, but that's okay. But 3% of the original benefit or one half of CPI. CPIU. Yes. Okay. Right. So that is a change that is definitely going to slow down or decrease the COLA increases year over year for tier two members. Correct. It also introduces a level of frustration for our retirees trying to budget, you know, for their retirement. Their pension may stay the same for 10 years or it may increase by 3% of their original benefit, you know, every right. it, or 0.2% or 0.4% right. or something. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, same thing again on the annual increases. Uh, every January 1 thereafter under tier 1 is the 3%. And tier two is one half of CPIU or three percent, whichever is is less. Correct for just the then correct. in the perpetuity annual increases, uh, and then this is what I wanted to go into, which was the the survivor benefits. So the tier one survivor benefits versus the current tier two that we just started talking about out of the consolidated pension fund. Can you go through for us the tier one survivor benefits? Sure. So for Tier 1 firefighters, the surviving spouse, so if the firefighter passes away, and again, this is going to exclude if our member is um, killed in the line of duty. If a member is killed in the line of duty, the benefit paid to the survivor is 100% of the member's salary, tax-free for the life of the spouse. So if we have a different situation and we lose our firefighter, if there is an eligible surviving spouse, The benefit that's going to be paid to that spouse is the greater of 54% of the pensionable salary that was used to calculate the member's benefit or the monthly benefit to which the member was entitled to receive when they passed away. So, for example, if you have a firefighter who retires with 30 years of service and is granted a 75% pension and passes away, the monthly benefit that firefighter was receiving when they passed away will, of course, be higher than 54% of their salary because their original pension was 75% of the salary. So whatever dollar amount pension that member was receiving when they passed away, let's say it was $6,000 a month, that $6,000 a month then gets paid over to the eligible surviving spouse for the continuation of his or her life 
with no future increases. Right. It freezes on our on the right. four side. Correct. And if in addition to the surviving spouse, there are eligible dependents, so a birth child or a legally adopted child, there's an additional benefit paid for each of those children in the amount of 12% per child. And when you take the spouse's benefit plus the children's benefit and add them together, it cannot exceed 75% of the member's salary that they retired on. And the dependent child is defined as that child under the age of 18 unless they have been adjudicated by some sort of physical or mental disability. Yeah. And t- now, go ahead. Oh, I was just to say if you don't have a surviving spouse um, and the firefighter passes away and they were single or divorced, whatever it may be at the time, but they do have dependent children, there's a benefit paid of 20% of the pensionable salary for each child. Again, it's capped at 75%. And I have yet to see this in my almost 20 years, but there is a provision in the statute that says if the firefighter passes away and there is no eligible surviving spouse and no eligible dependent children, we actually look to see if the firefighter has dependent parents. So did the firefighter actually claim mom or dad on their most recently filed tax return? Um, and if so, the parent receives 18% of the firefighter's salary um, as of their last day work. You know what? That's true. I'm sorry. All the, I've never seen that either. I don't remember. I, I remember that that's in the pension code, but I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, excuse me. So I remember that's, that's in the pension code. I've never one. seen that. For mm-hmm. tier one. By, oh, by the way, just let me know. Do you remember with my fund years that you're not going to remember this, but just we had a like little, little old ladies, surviving spouse, years and years and years. And her pension had been calculated wrong where it wasn't the higher, it wasn't the higher dollar amount or the 54% where she, you know, she should have been ramped up and she wasn't. And I think the pension fund owed her something like $87,000 and she was like 90 years old. We actually like called her so that she would not suffer a coronary event when she opened the envelope. But yeah, it was like, yeah, like, here you go. Here's $87,000, man. We owe you this by statute. Really enjoy it. But that I've seen that that happens from time to time it's like, oh, we got to yeah. make somebody whole here. So, all right, let's talk about teach. Can I ask, Allison, yes. just a very yeah. quick, simple question? No, you may not. Allison, can you, can you describe the, um, the requirement for marriage if you're retired and then get married after you retire? Is there something special or is there a time frame you yes. need to be married? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So for a spouse to be eligible to collect a survivor benefit under Article 4, the member would have need to would have had to marry this person while they were still active or if they're receiving a disability benefit. If the firefighter marries post-retirement, they have to be married for 12 consecutive months before that spouse is eligible to collect the pension. So um, if you have a single firefighter who retires, goes to Vegas, um, you know, his buddies help him celebrate, whatever. He meets the love of his life. Wakes up as the next long, morning. And get, <laughs> right, as shit. long as they stay married for 12 months, then that spouse is going to be eligible to 
like the firefighters' pension, uh, retirement pension. Because a disability pension, you're still in the club. You haven't retired yet. So, yes, you, you can get married on a disability all day long. Now, just for everybody, all our firefighter friends that are out there, that's very different than the police side. On the police side, you have to be married prior to your retirement. If you don't, that's it. That's the end of that. So if you are going to get married and you're a police officer listening to this, you better do it before you pull the pin. So it's a little bit different. But Correct. on our side, yes, as long as you're married for 12 consecutive months, she is now within the club. And and I want to talk a little bit about Quildros because I've had some pretty – we'll do this in a little bit, but I've had some pretty – kind of heartbreaking conversations where maybe some divorce attorneys years ago didn't really understand the meaning of surviving spouse, but we'll get to that in a second. So, um, Chuck, does it answer your, yep. Do you ever, it was uh, a softball question. Well, it was a softball, you know, and the other thing is but though too, is that she said, guys you know, need to know. You're, I'm asking questions over here, like tap dancing and you know, I get nothing. You ask one question. It's like, Oh, that was a great question, Chuck. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. Just amazing mm. question. Like the Buddha. So, so tier two. So, reining it back in. Tier two survivor benefits. That's correct. We're children here, so just help us. So, we talked about the tier one fire benefits. And then tier two survivor benefits were part of the change from the consolidation statute that went into effect the beginning of last year. And currently, the tier two survivor benefits are now the greater of the Tier 1 Fire Survivor Benefit, which we just went through, or 66 and two-thirds percent of the earned pension benefit at the time of death. So our folks are pretty much under Tier 2 going to be receiving the Tier 1 Survivor Benefit um, in most cases, which is a great increase in the, the benefit amount that's going to be paid out to them. And that was the uh, one that the AFFI had spearheaded to try to close the gap between that difference in tier one and tier two pension benefits. That was part of this last change uh, to the statute within the last year, correct? Right. Yes. Now there is another difference between survivor benefits for tiers one and two, and that is that tier two survivors are eligible to receive annual increases on their surviving retirement benefit, um, and they are dictated the exact same way as a regular tier two member. For retirement, which would be that once the survivor has hit age 60, the following January, they would be eligible for their initial increase, which again is the lesser of 3% of the original benefit or half the CPIU. And then once they are eligible for that first increase, every subsequent January, they are eligible for an annual increase that is also the lesser of 3% of the original benefit or half the CPIU. So tier two would get really most likely match the tier one surviving spouse benefit plus the one half of CPI or 3%, whichever is smaller. Right. Um, Okay. So we talked about the initial increases. We talked about the surviving spouse benefits. Let's go. There's no difference. Yeah. There's no difference between our tiers with disabilities. Well, then that was, that was the segue. I just want everybody to, to understand. I've got a few questions. So we have occupational disease, we have line of duty, and we have non-duty disability pension benefits. So non-duty, tell me if I'm getting this right, 50% taxable, correct? Correct. Line of duty, 65% tax-free and occupational disease, 65% tax-free. Uh, on the occupational disease side, there are some jurisdictional requirements, time on job, et cetera. But, um, um, on these, so let me throw you another softball question. 
I have 30 years on the job, which would make me eligible for 75% of my pension, and I go out on a line-of-duty disability, is all 75% tax-free? Well, wow, Jerry, that's just a phenomenal question. And the answer to that is no, it's not all tax-free. Thank you, Allison, fellow Sox fan. So You're welcome. Break so, down the tax. Um, Okay, so the IRS tells us that any pension benefit that's paid based on age and length of service, like a retirement pension, is taxable. And any pension benefit that's paid similar to a worker's comp injury is tax-free. So if we have someone, a firefighter, who has been granted a line-of-duty disability, that tells us, okay, it's work-related, so theoretically it would be tax-free. But quite a few years ago, Article 4 added a little bit into the statutes for this type of pension that says, if you're granted a line-of-duty disability, you're eligible for the greater of 65% or what you'd be eligible for if you could actually retire. So in the scenario Jerry just gave, he's got 30 years in, he's eligible to retire at 75%. That's greater than the 65%. Therefore, he's going to be receiving a 75% line-of-duty disability pension. The first 65% is based on that workers' comp concept that the IRS says is tax-free. Everything above that on that initial calculation, so that additional 10%, reflects what he, Jerry, would be eligible to receive if he retired which is based on age and length of service and is taxable. So just because you are receiving a work-related injury disability does not necessarily mean it's going to be completely tax-free. It'll just so be the if you are of. Correct. Yep. Every year we have to look at what your actual pension benefit is and what it would have been if you had less than, I believe it's 26 years of service is the breaking point for that calculation. You subtract the two, and that's the amount the member is liable to pay taxes on to Uncle Sam. So I want to talk, now that we've con- talked about the disability portion uh, process, and by the way, everybody, so PSEBA benefits, Public Safety Employee Benefits Act benefits, uh, apply to line of duty, do not apply to occupational disease, do not apply to non-duty. I do get questions like that all the time. Uh, in addition to that, I want to uh, move into um, ways, different, a couple of different ways of that firefighters will establish benefits under the fund. First is the purchase of military service time. I get questions about this all of the time about purchasing military service time, where you can purchase up to the twenty-four months. Can you explain to us what that purchase of military time entails? Certainly. So. The purpose of our pension fund is to pay benefits to our members, and those benefits are based on the length of creditable service, and there has been a provision in the statutes for a little while now that allows a member to add creditable service without actually working as an active member, and one of those ways is through a military purchase, and the statute says that if you worked in the military, if you were in the military prior to being hired and being accepted as a member into the pension fund, you can purchase up to 24 months of that military time and tack it on to your Article 4 creditable service. It sounds wonderful until you start looking at it and do the math. And this bill came out more recently when we were in an environment where folks, um, the public 
was getting a lot of misinformation and thinking that these pension benefits were just exorbitant and out of control. And so under pressure, Springfield said, okay, well, we're going to let our members buy this time, but there's going to be, and let's flash back to the beginning of the podcast here, there's going to be an impact on that actuarial calculation. So let's say, for example, I have 18 years of service. When the actuary does their math, they're going to say, okay, we still have some time to collect money before we have to start paying Allison her pension. Well, now there's this bill out there and this opportunity for me to actually purchase another two years. And then lo and behold, I have 20 years and I can now retire. And the actuary says, whoa, wait a minute. We don't have enough money for that yet, theoretically speaking. And instead of paying for that, you know, we talked about the three different pieces um, of where that money comes from for the pension funds, the employee contribution, employer contribution, and investments. If I'm suddenly going to be retiring sooner than everyone thought, and I'm going to, um, the pension fund's going to need some more money sooner than they thought. They don't, Springfield did not want to pass that additional cost, that unfunded liability onto the taxpayers. So they said, well, the firefighter can buy these extra 24 months, but the entire burden of the additional cost is going to fall on the firefighter's shoulders. And so the calculation basically says that the firefighter has to pay not only the employee contribution portion, from the date they were originally hired with the pension fund, interest that has accrued since that higher date, because remember, our fire pension fund didn't have that money to invest, so the member's going to have to kick in some interest. But the pension fund also didn't have any money in their property tax levies representing this additional service time, nor did they have that money to invest and earn interest on. So. Sorry for ending my sentence with preposition. My mother would kill me. That's correct. Um, so essentially, yes. So essentially, we have seen for the majority of firefighters looking to purchase this service, they're looking at like forty, fifty thousand dollars, and the bulk of that calculation is all of that interest. So again, if I have eighteen years on the job, I'm paying eighteen years of interest on an employee contribution and an employer contribution. So yes, it's great that I can buy up to 24 months and leave earlier if I want to. In fact, when the law first came out, we had a firefighter in a fire protection district that was three months shy of retiring. And due to the circumstances there in the department, he wanted out. He bought three months and skated. Um, this statute is extremely beneficial to the folks you first when you first hire them. So if you bring somebody in today who happens to be in the military before you hired them, the interest portion of their calculation is minimal, and so it would be, you know, it would be, it would be wise, uh, a good move for them to purchase that time. I tell all of our new hires, if you have military time, like certainly within the first six months, go ahead and have at it for exactly that interest reason. Because breaking down what you said for our listeners, again, you have to pay the employee portion, the employer portion, and plus all of that interest. So 
all of that interest translates into do the damn transfer as soon as you can, as soon as you get hired, as opposed to waiting seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. Because to your point, if you do it mathematically, it, it, let's say if it costs $50,000 to make that transfer and you buy the two years and your average pension benefit, as we just said, is about $58,000, in effect, you've really only bought, what, like 13 months or something like that because you have to pay yourself back what you've out, you know, what you've outlaid for that time. So, Luke, am I missing anything? Did you want to? So we, we asked, the, the military service has to be prior to hire. So that's pretty clear. And Allison, you were kind of uh, talking when you cut out about like National Guard service or things that might happen after the fact. Right. So um, if you're an active firefighter in the reserves and you get called up to active duty, that's a whole nother type of purchase, um, which essentially... It, it goes to the idea of your creditable service is a give-to-get theory. You have to give contributions to get creditable service. And if you get called up to active duty and your municipality stops paying you because you're being paid by the government, how are they going to be making contributions? How are they going to take contributions out of your military check to pay to the pension fund? So that's, like I said, that's kind of a whole nother. Yeah, a whole nother where you can make those repayments and et cetera. So... I also want to talk to you about reciprocity between the funds and and how you can establish uh, the different uh, the different um, really credible service with two different funds. So again, uh, if I have at least two years in the Berwyn Fire Department and I leave and I go to Cicero, I could then establish f- credible service between the two funds, and all of that can go into the pot towards my twenty to thirty years of service. Correct. And so reciprocity. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask. Explain to me reciprocity. After you're done with your turn signal. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get pulled over by the police. Um, so reciprocity came into being back in July of 2004, and it offers the firefighters the opportunity to retire with service at multiple departments and for multiple pension funds to get to that. 20 years of service. Um, you have to have one year of service at least with your prior fund, and you have to have at least three years with the last fund. So those are one of the requirements. And all I want to talk, so we're going to talk about the reciprocity. Um, I want to talk about like one other thing, and I think we're going to keep Quildros for a, a, a separate, yeah, because Quildros are going to be in and of itself a whole thing. So again, reciprocity, I can establish time between two separate pension funds, but how does that work in, in payment uh, between those two funds? Right. So the firefighter is going to owe some money to both of those pension funds, and we keep talking about both. There actually is no limit under the statute. I was talking with Luke earlier today and sharing with him that we actually have a fire chief that is on his fourth pension fund. Oh, that's got to be a record so for four of them. I know, right? So, But for the ease of explanation, we'll stick with the two. So the firefighter is going to have to owe some money to both pension funds in order to be eligible to receive this retirement. And then, of course, they're going to eventually retire, and they're going to end up getting two retirement checks every month and two 1099 forms every year, one from each pension fund. So the general concept about how much money does the firefighter have to pay to do reciprocity, the answer is an additional 1% contribution. So the firefighter pays an additional 
1% contribution to both pension funds whose service they are combining. All of the calculations under reciprocity for each pension fund are based on that particular pension fund's data. So if you have a firefighter with pension fund A, and then they go to pension fund B, the money they owe pension fund A is based on the length of service at pension fund A and the final salary at pension fund A, and then the same for pension fund B. So they don't necessarily cross over. So when I leave the Berwyn Fire Department and I go to the Cicero Fire Department, I have to pay, pol- I have to pay both of them the 10.455%. Correct. And the key is that when the firefighter decides formally that, yes, I want to do reciprocity, And again, if the firefighter was hired before July 1st of 2004, they have until they retired to make this decision. If you hired them or or they joined your department after July 1st of 2004, they have 21 months from the day they're hired to decide if they want to do reciprocity. They don't have to pay it all at that time, but they have to decide. And that written declaration date, from that date forward, that additional 1% is just withheld from their paycheck. So that's where they go to the 10.455%. I was just going to say, from that date, retroactively, they owe interest on the 1%. Well, I want to stop for a second because I have had, everybody knows this, I I represent labor unions and pension funds. And I have to tell you, one of the things that I've seen over and over again with Article 4 pension funds is whether or not an individual made notification to both under my scenario, the Berwyn Fire Pension Fund, the Cicero Fire Pension Fund, and also the Department of Insurance. So everybody out there listening, you have 21 months. And if you can be organized enough to sign up for and draft a good or bad fantasy football team, you should have the ability to send in a certified letter to both pension funds and the DOI within 21 months to definitively show that you requested to establish that reciprocity. Because I know some attorneys out there who may be sitting at this table right now that will do anything they can to try to help their guys and say, okay, how was notification made? Or, okay, so you are saying you did this. I know other attorneys out there that say, nope, absolutely not, and sue us. So it is just a lot easier if you just did the right thing and established your notification within the 21-month period, please for the love of God. The next issue looking at statutes, I just want to make sure that we talk about, and and Allison, you, you and I have talked about this, is there are open windows sometimes. Over the years, there has been open windows to transfer time from, you know, I don't know, Article 4 to Article 6, from Article 7 IMRF to Article 4. And, you know, these statutes will pop and then they will open up. And I know myself uh, and the Associated Firefighter, you know, everybody goes out there and, and makes notification to our, our affiliates. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's also incumbent upon you to look. Sometimes you will see you know, that, oh, for the next 30 days, you can transfer up to six months of IMRF time into Article 4, blah, 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 and then it closes again. You, you, you've, it, Allison, right. you've seen that before as well. Yes. In fact, uh, most recently, we had a statute open and close within that, that very short six-month window, allowing members to transfer time out of Article 4 to Chicago and from Chicago into Article 4. Yes. And I had multiple individuals in my pension funds that I represent who did take advantage of that. I had about I had about four or five that were able to transfer the credible service time given that time. So that 
changes all of the time, those statutes, uh, you know, depending on the legislature. And obviously the Associated Firefighters come, sees that there's a need from their members and opens this up, but it's not indefinite. It'll open up, you know, for 30 days, 60 days, you know, et cetera. So, right. Um, right. so we covered military, we covered reciprocity, we covered, you know, and again, the notification within 21 what, 21 month time period. We looked at those windows opening. I think Luke, again, can I jump in real quick? Yes, please do. Allison, I, I assume that you read this the same way. And tier two reciprocity is, um, very, uh, what's the word ambiguous. So, Oh, to say the least. Absolutely. Yes, we, yes. we just, for your own information, we have Senate bill 167 introduced, um, with the support of the department of insurance to, uh, make that crystal clear that tier two is, will be eligible for reciprocity. Just like it is. Oh, I that's mean, fantastic. Yeah. Because right. there's been a lot of questions uh, statewide. <laughs> this would kind of clean that up. So now we consider that it's cleanup. I mean, but. Right. Yeah. You know. that, yeah. We're saying the original intent. Correct. In 2011, 2010 yeah. was to, to include tier. Let, yeah. To, let the tier two individuals have that same uh, benefit. benefit. And that number, we believe out there with those tier two that, have made notification. What was that like four or 500 almost? Yeah. I, which I found surprising. Um, when I was talking with the public pension division of the department of insurance, uh, about the bill, they said that they had already received when you guys were talking about the 21 month notification to DOI, uh, 480 some odd, uh, oh my. yeah. Requests to take advantage of. But you know, to, to the point of, you know, you have 21 months for the love of God, do it. Yeah, right. When this bill passes, which just reiterates what the original intent was, you know, the DOI is going to look at that over, you know, who made notification pursuant to the statute and who didn't. So it's one of my pet peeves. It's like, dude, you got 21 months, bring it, you know, you tell everybody. So, uh, you know, hopefully everybody's covered. Um, Chuck, what else? Well, and on maybe that? one step, once that passes, we could do a whole podcast just on reciprocity. Just you've got what happens if you want to rescind, what happens if you're doing reciprocity right. and you get hurt, right? Which pension fund pays for your disability benefit? So there's all sorts of different scenarios that come up quite a bit. One of the things that there's an entire podcast over that we're planning, which I don't want to get into today because, my God, and you and I have done plenty of seminars on this and conferences is the wonderful world of Quildros. I think we are going to do that at a later date. It is always a very popular topic where, where members have all sorts of questions about Quildros and related issues and what hypothetically may happen. But that one's going to be a different story for uh, for a different day. But this is what I wanted to cover. Allison, anybody, Luke, Chuck, any final thoughts on kind of the wonderful world of Pension 101 that anybody can understand. Allison, was there anything that we were missing? No, I think we hit the highlights. Definitely, definitely hit the highlights. Luke, Chuck, anybody? Oh, I think uh, this was great. And again, we could have multiple podcasts on this. Oh, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of different angles and different benefits and things like that that we could really get into. And I really like the idea of the uh, call-in show. Oh my! Oh. So where we could have people call in and ask questions. Long time listener, first time caller. Let's talk about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I <laughs> right. think it's going to be. I, right. I think it's a winner. I sure. think it's. A, I think it's a winner. Allison, uh, and also to Lauterbach and Amin, thank you so very much for uh, everything that you well, do. Thank you guys for having me. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. do another benefits one. Give me a buzz. Absolutely. Right. Don't get uh, don't get pulled over by the police. Use your turn signal, and we will talk to you down the road. Thank you for your time. 
Okay. Thanks, Take guys. Care. See ya. All right. Okay. Thank you.